This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we're going to wrap up a year of Good Faith Effort episodes by looking back on the top 15 moments and episodes of the year. And we're going to do it in order, meaning number one is going to be my hands down official no backsies favorite moment of Good Faith Effort this year. And along the way, I'm going to try and explain what I loved about each one of these top 15 moments and episodes and give you a little context. So if you're already a member of the Good Faith fam, I hope you'll enjoy this as both a review and as a way for me to share my own thinking about these episodes with you. And I'd love to hear from you about what your favorite episodes were. So hit me up on Twitter, on Instagram or anywhere else. And if you're not yet a hardcore uh, Good Faith head, well, uh, then this episode is probably going to be a great way to get into the show. So... Without further ado, here's your top 15 good faith moments of the year, starting with number 15. Number 15. Okay, so number 15 was actually one of the very first episodes of Good Faith Effort. I had on the actor from Wet Hot American Summer and a ton of other things, comedian, best-selling author, Michael Ian Black. And at the time, this one was from December 4th, 2020. We were studying the book of Genesis, and if you're keeping track on the Hebrew calendar, this was the episode for Parshas Vayishlach. And this episode really got at exactly why the book of Genesis is so crucial as a manual for life in today's age. Because all the greatest stories of Genesis, like all the great stories of classical antiquity, are about transitions from childhood to adulthood, from grief to joy, from cowardliness to courage. But the crucial difference is that the biblical stories don't really have these, you know, these singular godlike heroes that you find in Greek story and myth, right? You don't have an Achilles or a Hercules or a Jason. Instead, the heroes are actually collective. They're families whose challenges to rise or fall together. And the closest thing to an exception to this rule in the biblical narrative might be Joseph, right, alone in Egypt. But even there, the whole point of the story is to reveal at the end that Joseph is still a part of his family after all. So when I had on Michael Ian Black to talk about his amazing recent book, A Better Man, we actually got to talking about that very difference between classical do-it-alone Achilles-style heroism and the more subtle but I think more powerful strength of being part of a heroic community. So anyway, listen in. And now without further ado, here's your top good faith effort moment. Number 15 in your book, you have this brilliant reading of Thomas the Tank Engine of all things, which, you know, back in the day when I was a kid was shining time station, I think, Mm -hmm. um, which like randomly had George Carlin on it, go figure, but where the highest compliment anyone gets paid is you're a very useful engine. And you entertain the possibility that you could build a philosophy of manhood on the idea of being useful to others. But you also critique this in part because I think you rightly worry that judging people simply by their usefulness is a recipe for really like massive emotional burnout. And it's also kind of dehumanizing. But that said, you also write really beautifully about the respect you have for military service, even as you suspect that we humans are like too war obsessed. And about whether you'd send your own kids off to war, you write, I'd hate myself for sending you and hate myself for keeping you home. 
honestly, I actually think about this a ton. So I have two sisters who they happen to live in Israel and they're building their own families. And I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that their kids, unlike mine, are going to grow up taking for granted that they'll either serve in the military or else volunteer for national service, whether it's in an orphanage or somewhere else. And I actually worry that my kids will miss out by not having that ethic. So not that I want America to reinstitute the draft. I think that'd be a terrible idea. But is there something American kids or many American kids are missing out on by not feeling that obligation to serve their country or their community? I think so. I think when I was just talking about my about different groups um, and the way we build community, sometimes, you know, fractured left and right. I do think, and I've come to feel this more as I've gotten older, that one way to bridge that divide is through national service. I don't think that means military service. In fact, I don't think we need a lot of people rushing to enlist in the military, but there's so much that could be done and should be done at home I'm increasingly of the opinion that there should be some sort of national service requirement. I don't know what that looks like exactly. I don't know what the duration of that would be, but it seems like we are lacking in commonality now. We're becoming ever more segregated in a lot of ways. And a way to defeat that would be to just start mixing up teenagers, 18, 19, 20-year-olds from all parts of the country working towards some greater good for the sake of community. And I think there's a lot to be gained personally from that too. Speaking of, I actually had a friend who moved to America from Israel. He said that his son came home on the first day after elementary, after like fourth grade, I think it was, after a fire drill and said it was a really weird fire drill. And he said, why? And he said, well, because the bell rang and we all just went outside. And he's like, yeah, that's a fire drill. And he said, well, in my school back home, right back in Israel, he said, the way a fire drill works is when the fire drill happens, the bell rings, the eighth graders go and get the third graders and the seventh graders go and get the second graders. And that's what a fire drill is. Like it's baked into it that you care for somebody else over it. And I feel that's a, a huge part of what in our culture we're really deeply missing. Yeah, I think you're right. It's hard to determine like how to instill that, but it seems like we have to try. It seems like we're so focused on our own individual goals and successes that we're leaving a lot of people behind. And so much of the mentality of this country is that that's okay and it's not our problem. But from a purely like pragmatic point of view, it is your problem, it's everybody's problem. When social programs are failing, when people are living in poverty, when people are going hungry, when people are not being educated, you know, it's naive to think that that doesn't also affect you in some capacity, whether it's because let's say you own a company, you can't find skilled workers to come work with you, or your country's GDP is going down, or life expectancy is going down. I mean, from a purely pragmatic, purely selfish point of view, it seems like we should acknowledge that we're in this together and that we're all better off when we help each other. Amen to that. Guys, don't be dummies. Drop what you're doing now and go buy A Better Man wherever you get your books. And Michael Ian Black, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thank you so much. And guys, come on, don't be dummies. Don't be dummies indeed. Uh, That was amazing. Uh, Okay, so on to number 14. Number 14. 
This one, appropriately, was from the 14th of May for Hebrew nerds, the week of Parsha's Bamidbar, and it featured NBA star, living legend of NBA Twitter, Ennis Cantor, then of the Portland Trailblazers, now on the Celtics, and we got to talk about one of my low-key, absolute favorite topics for anyone who knows me, and that's how one of the proudest, fiercest bastions of faith in our entire culture is actually professional sports. So many athletes are deeply proud of their faith. Uh, Most are Christians, and Ennis, of course, is a committed, dedicated Muslim. And so, as you can imagine, we got to talking about Ennis's own encounter with how important faith is to the life of an NBA player. And I actually am sort of like a connoisseur of like ESPN or Sports Illustrated or the athletic articles where it'll be about a totally different topic. Like somebody on the Miami heat got injured or whatever. And it'll be like, well, we spoke to Jimmy Butler after he got out of his weekly Bible study. And he had this to say about the injury. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa back up. Like, I want to know what was happening in that Bible study. So, uh, we got to talking about all of that kind of stuff and much more in the episode. Here's a clip from that incredible, uh, episode. Give it a listen. This is your number 14. So I actually want to ask you about the locker room, right? So like the NBA or maybe even like major sports leagues in general, It's the one area in popular culture where the stars are actually Mm -hmm. very often, maybe even the majority, religious. Like you never Mm -hmm. read about all the actors on the set of Ocean's Eleven doing like a Bible study together, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right? But you regularly read that in ESPN. Like even stories that aren't about religion, like some of the background be like, oh yeah, so here's this like totally unrelated thing that happened while Jimmy Butler was leading a Bible study with his teammates, right? Yeah. And so first of all, am I right in noticing this? And like, is religion more of a thing among athletes and other major pop culture figures? And and can this have a positive influence? A hundred percent, because I have a teammate who was reading Bible in a halftime. That's amazing. In a halftime, you know, we have 15 minutes. So first five minutes, we just relax and we drink water. We just, you know, just hang out and breathe and relax our body. And then the next five minute coach comes and give a talk about the first half and what we should do in the second half. And then the next five minutes, we just go out there and shoot a little bit. So that first five minutes, he reads Bible in his locker room. I love it. I was like, I looked at it. I'm like, oh my God, that is so amazing. And like before the game, there's always one guy, you know, just comes in the middle, we get in the huddle and he prays for everybody. And before the games, that actually, whenever I learned that amazed me. And I was just so sad. Just I was like, why can't we have this, you know, in Turkey too? Because I mean, I play basketball in Turkey and we did not have that. Totally incredible. I really love the culture that Ennis describes. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Anyway, on to number 13. Number 13. So this was one of the earliest episodes of Good Faith Effort, like in our entire run. It's from November 13th, 2020, way back when we were uh, also talking a lot about the book of Genesis. And I had on Karen Swallow Pryor, who's one of the best known Christian academics in the world today, Uh, certainly on Twitter. She's a total legend. And she's now teaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And we actually spent most of the beginning of the episode talking about kindness which is something Karen's written a great deal about. But by the end of the episode, we actually got into the topic of reading great and often challenging works of literature because Karen's a a major internationally renowned scholar of English literature. Her edition of Frankenstein is amazing. She's put out editions of works by Jane Austen. Just incredible. So I wanted to know for someone like myself who kind of like, you know, naturally finds it easier to just pick up some light fiction or a spy novel or whatever. So like, what's the case for actually buckling down and tackling that 
serious book or other that you've always wanted to read. And I just, I thought her answer was fantastic. So listen in to your number 13. One of the things you've written and, and taught a tremendous amount about, and you, you alluded to it before, is the importance of reading great books, great works of literature. And it's a crucial tool for making us better people. And now, you know, I imagine most folks are normally just going to head straight for the spy novels in the airport bookstore. Or I guess, I mean, I guess back when airports were a thing, right? But, and, and, and please God, they will be again. But seriously, right? I, I, I bet most people find great books intimidating. And so what's the case for giving it a shot mm. and picking up something a little more challenging, maybe even for the first time? That is such a great question. And and of course, there's really nothing wrong with reading, you know, a spy novel or a thriller for entertainment. That's a wonderful way to spend time. But I think it's important to kind of distinguish between the things that we read that are for entertainment or information, you know, like like those those works or we read information we read a blog or a newspaper article for information and actual you know literary works of art which operates on a completely different level it's, i mean it's the same thing as using paint to cover your wall and make it pretty which is nice i do that or creating a painting and looking at that i mean that's the difference between just reading material and literary art and literary art makes demands upon us. And it's not an automatic thing. It's not an automatic thing that if you read great works of literature, you're going to be a better person because there are lots of brilliant, educated people out there who have not become better people by reading great literature. I, I think we could <laughs> we all gotta, come up with candidates yeah, in our mind. Yeah, we, we won't even name them. Um, right. <laughs> people who are nice to dogs or something, but you know. Right. <laughs> um, but going back to the whole topic of virtue, especially the way that Aristotle talked about it, being kind of a muscle or something that you have to exercise, reading works of literature as an art form requires us to kind of exercise our, our empathy, our critical thinking, our perspective. It requires us to see the world through someone else's eyes or, and often to, you know, to see the world in a different time or place or different perspective from someone who's not like us. And that itself is an opportunity to exercise these qualities like kindness and like gentleness and like humility, uh, because the act of reading itself especially when it requires that kind of challenge from us of, of patience and attention span, it allows us to exercise those kinds of virtues. So in other words, picking up a, a serious novel of that sort, it's sort of like going to the gym or lifting weights, right? It's it's not something you do every second of the day. I myself, I'm a big spy novel guy, but it's the it's kind of like, you know, you build muscle. That's important. Exactly. And, and you know, when we talk about virtue ethics and literature, oftentimes we think about the lessons that the works impart. And that's, you know, that is fine. We learn about good and evil and we learn about good choices and bad choices from the stories. But it's more than that. It's, it's really, like you said, we're, we're exercising muscles of perspective and patience and diligence and just immersing ourselves in the in the world and seeing it through someone else's eyes, which does a lot more for us than just teach us a lesson. Although the lessons are good too. <laughs> Phenomenal advice, truly. Karen is such a treasure. And and especially as we begin a new year, that just got me so energized to take, you know, that <laughs> Henry the Fourth back off the shelf and read through it. So Karen, you are amazing. Big shout out to you. Okay, so moving right along here, let's get to number 12. Number 12. This was the episode from June 1st. So this was right as the conflict in Israel this past summer was heating up. And so I had on the amazing Lahav Harkov, the Jerusalem Post's diplomatic correspondent, 
to talk about uh, the state of Western reporting on Israel. And happily enough, that week actually happened to be the week on the Hebrew calendar of Parshas Shlach, which, uh, for those following along at home or not familiar with the, uh, the Hebrew calendar, it meant that we were focusing on the book of Numbers and particularly on chapters 13 and 14, uh, when Moses and the Israelites send spies to check out the promised land only for the spies to return back and try to convince the people that settling the Holy Land would be next to impossible. So the Israelites should just, you know, like <laughs> pack it up and head right back to Egypt. One of the classic horrific sins in the history of the Israelites sojourn through the desert. And uh, as Lahav pointed out, this was actually the first major failure in world history of reporting on Israel. And her analysis of that story was, quite frankly, super fascinating. So here's the clip. Enjoy. This is your number 12. I think the fascinating thing about looking at the story, you know, in the book of Numbers of these leaders, you know, you know, in Hebrew, we often refer to them as the Miraglim, the spies who are kind of reporting on the land of Israel. The story of sort of like missing the picture in the land of Israel is an ancient one. So you've given that story some thought. How does that relate to your experience as a journalist covering land of Israel? I started thinking about this in terms of journalism a few years ago when we talked about sort of like fake news and sensationalism. I mean, when you look at the story of the spies, they start out with pretty good journalistic instructions like uh, Moses, Moshe gives them a list of questions. And I, I can read it to you. They said, like, you know, how is the land? Are the people who dwell in it stronger, weak? Are they fewer numerous? You know, how are the cities in which they dwell? Are they open or are they fortified? Is the land fertile or lean? Are there trees or not? You know, this is a, a good list of questions when you're going out to look at a land and report back to the people who want to live there. And they come back and they give like a solid answer in the beginning, right? They start with, you know, we arrived at the land to which you sent us and it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. And the the sort of tradition, the, the commentaries say that they had enormous giant fruit bigger than we're used to seeing these days. And then it said, the people that dwell in the land is powerful. The cities are fortified and very great. We also saw there the offspring of the giant. And there's a list of some of the different nations that live there. So then Caleb comes, you know, and he says, like, don't worry about those nations. I'm sure we can still conquer the land. And then at that point, the rest of the spies come and they want to make this story more exciting. <laughs> they come and they make it sensational. Up until then, they gave, I think, a reasonable, they gave sort of the two sides where these are the good things, these are the bad things. And the moment that they're sort of being challenged to some extent, I don't even think Caleb's challenging them on the facts, right? He's trying to encourage the Jewish people. But the moment that these people feel a challenge, they sort of double down and they make their story even more sensational. We can't go. The people are too strong for us. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. And then they go sort of on and on. They say we were grasshoppers compared to the size of the giants. These are like the first like Twitter blue check marks and they instigate like the first Twitter mob in history. Exactly. Is it? That's totally it. Because you have the two spies, you have Caleb and Joshua who were saying you know, it's okay, we can do it. And they're trying to sort of be moderate and reasonable. And then you have the other 10 piling on, you know, and being like, what are you talking about? We can't do it. You know, why <laughs> Why does God want to send us there? This is such a social media parable. This is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And I just, I just think that it's like, in some ways, it's like such a cautionary tale about sensationalizing instead of just like looking at the facts and trying to lay them out in a reasonable manner. And in the end, right, you know, in the Jewish tradition, we see them as people who who sinned, who told Lashon forbidden speech because they were really stretching the truth in a way that was slanderous of 
the Holy Land. And, you know, for journalists, it's unethical behavior. If this was a real journalistic story, it would be told unethically. Totally brilliant. Ah, and by the way, check out Lahav's own podcast for the Jerusalem Post. Uh, it's quite awesome, I can tell you that. Anyway, we're now at the last episode before the top 10, so uh, savor this one. This one is number 11. Number 11. This was the episode from March 18th, 2021 with Trey Stevens, who's a partner at the legendary VC firm Founders Fund with Peter Thiel and co-founder of the super hot defense industry startup Andrel Industries, which is incredible. And of course, because this is good faith effort, Trey's also a, a very serious person of faith. He's a Christian. Uh, who's written about how religious tradition and philosophy shape the way that he thinks about his field. He has a wonderful article on Medium about how tradition and traditional sources, particularly just war theory and Augustine, help him think about his own involvement in the defense industry. And so honestly, you could argue that this episode should just be straight in the top three. Uh, maybe it should even be number one. I mean, I think this episode and the Catherine Boyle episode, which we may or may not hear from later on, hashtag no spoilers, but this episode and, and, and that one in many ways changed good faith effort forever in terms of expanding the show's reach and opening up my own horizons about the kind of guests that I wanted to have. And on this particular episode, which on the Hebrew calendar was Parshas Vayikra, it was the first week that we'd started talking about the book of Leviticus with all its rituals and its traditions. And it was an occasion for us, myself and Trey, to talk about startups and the tech field as a whole and the question of, you know, whether everyone in that field, in the startup area, needs to be a Moses, needs to be a founder, or whether there's ever room for a Joshua, someone who's a student, a student of tradition, first and foremost. And it was just a fascinating discussion. Trey is just a wealth of knowledge and, and faith and devotion. And so with that intro, here is number 11. Part of me feels like maybe one of the problems that you're outlining is like, I'm always really suspicious of people who don't have teachers. And I mean, teachers in the like traditional sense of someone that you revere, right? Not someone you admire, someone you revere. And I'm always suspicious of people who don't have that. And I feel like in Silicon Valley, there's this or kind of, again, I'm dealing sort of in the popular perception of tech. I mean, I suppose, you know, even the, the fund that you work for, right? Everyone wants to be a founder, right? So everybody wants to be a Moses, but nobody wants to be a Joshua. And yet there's something to being a Joshua, right? To continuing in a tradition. When I think of your work and your contribution, so you have this fantastic article that, by the way, everybody should read about applying just war theory to how you think about investing in defense and whether you should invest in defense. And part of why I think that's really powerful is because you come at your groundbreaking work in the tech sector from the perspective of, I have something to learn from tradition here, right? So do you think about that consciously, like kind of bringing, you know, the sources of tradition into your very new and pathbreaking work? For sure. Yes. <laughs> I think you would not have to read very much of the article that I posted on defense ethics to like have some idea for how much time I spend kind of wringing my hands on these things, trying to like really grit into the complexity of the topics that are at least core to my job and career, whether that's as a venture capitalist or as the co-founder of a defense company. But, you know, tying this back to the original discussion of Leviticus, which I think is, is a powerful kind of metaphor in some ways for the conversations that we're digging into today. For most of my life, I think I would have read the book of Leviticus and conceptualized this as God's law. And it's like, well, what is, what is God's law? It's like God telling us all the things that we're not supposed to do and the things that we are supposed to do and like how we're punished and how our sin is absolved and things like that, all, all in that context. 
But now that I'm like further along in life and I've had more time to think about this, like I, I think I've begun to realize that God's law in most cases is just wisdom about how to not screw up your life and society. And so it's like, you know, you might want to do this thing. I've told you not to do it. You might be resentful that I've told you not to do this thing that you want to do. But the only reason I'm telling you that is because I, I know how the, how the story ends. And this is not going to actually bring you joy or lead to abundance. A very short way of saying this is like the reason God requires is because it's what he desires. And I think that's like a tension that most people don't understand about what they view as being like just highly dogmatic legal structures. And that's something that I have leaned into really hard, not only here at Founderswim, but also with Andrew, is just this idea that like, there are all sorts of things that like are conceptually like easy. Like you could say like, my desire is an indication in some way that this is the thing that I should be doing or the thing that's moral. It's like the, the tie between like my own uh, humanity and the goodness of that humanity. Um, but I, I think that there's, all, there's this big category of things that are like really hard and really tough to struggle through and they don't feel good, but they are good. And getting to the place where we're able to have that dialogue and reach a conclusion that says, this doesn't make me feel good, but it is the moral decision. We've kind of lost that as a society in some ways by condensing our intellectual discourse to 140 characters. It doesn't work like it should. Mm, nothing, uh, <laughs> nothing like a good riff on Leviticus. Uh, as, uh, as any uh, rabbi or pastor or minister will tell you, having to uh, speak about Leviticus in front of uh, an audience is surefire way to make a headache for yourself. So uh, anyway, that was incredible. Trey's amazing. Give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, and uh, guys, that brings us right into the top 10. That's huge. So let's get rocking with number 10. Number 10. All right. This one from June 15th. This was two weeks after the Lahav Harkov episode that we heard a little bit ago. This is really an all timer. One of my bucket list episodes and one of the episodes that actually got featured on the Marginal Revolution blog. Shout out to Tyler Cowan for being uh, an amazing uh, fan of Good Faith Effort, friend of the pod. And this episode was with Leah Bustan, who's no joke, like a world famous economist at Princeton, who's doing some of the most cutting edge work on the planet and is huge and very active on economics Twitter. And at the same time, as part of this new cadre of economists that's now studying a page of the Talmud every day, which is a practice called Dafyomi, right? the daily page, studying a page of the Talmud per day. And in fact, Leah's had an amazing Twitter account dedicated just to her study of Leah's Dafyomi account, and you should totally follow that on Twitter. So in this clip, I basically just asked her about how she came to all of this stuff, and she just was incredible, did not disappoint. She's totally brilliant. Anyway, give it a listen. This is your number 10. So academia is a field that, at least in the popular imagination, kind of like codes non-religious and has this popular reputation of being a place that's kind of inhospitable to traditional religion. But historically speaking, universities were nearly always bastions of like great religious thought. And even scholars working in non-theological fields were nourished by their faith. And I kind of see you actually in this tradition. So while you're doing some of the most methodologically innovative cutting edge work in economics today, which I want to talk about in a bit, you're also, right, at least, at least on my reading, like pretty old school in the sense that you're really proud of your faith and you bring those values like really straightforwardly and unselfconsciously into your work. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to this? What's your journey been like and what's it like bringing your faith into academia and vice versa? Well, I think that having Twitter as a place for conversation has really helped in that regard because 
You're right that many academics are not that religious or don't see their religious faith as an important part of their identity. So there is strength in numbers. When we have Twitter, we can find each other. And I have been able to find good friends and dialogue partners who are committed Christians, who are part of the LDS church, uh, who are Muslim, and also who are Jewish in the field of economics that I think I would not have known before because we don't really wear our faith identities on our sleeve. So if I had met those folks at a conference, we probably wouldn't have talked about it. I had a really interesting experience starting Daf Yomi, actually. It began on the last day of the American Economic Association conference around a year and a half ago. This was the last conference that I went to in person. And since then, everything's been on Zoom, of course. And I was flying back from the conference with a colleague of mine and looking at my phone while we were in line to get on the plane. And he's like, what you looking at? I said, oh, the Talmud, you know, I'm going to be <laughs> committed to this for the next seven and a half years. 1.8 million words, no big deal. <laughs> I told him about what we were learning that day. He's also a Jewish economist, not terribly interested in, you know, his Jewish identity or faith. But he said, that sounds interesting. Let me download the Safari app while we're waiting in line. I'll take a look at it too. A year and a half later, and he's still doing Dafyomi. That's amazing. That's an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that if you put yourself out there a little bit, um, then you'll find that there are other people who are, you know, there waiting to meet you, but also, you know, might be inspiring to other folks to take a little step in that direction as well. So I actually remember when you started doing Dafyomi because I, creepily enough, I'm like a huge fan of yours from way before that. I'm like the kid who got into Nirvana before like Kurt Cobain became a thing. So like I just read your economics papers, right? And then all of a sudden you became like Leia's Dafyomi page. And I remember actually one of the first things that you tweeted about, or maybe it was like sort of a year on when you like tweeted some reflections about it. You said something like in the beginning, everybody was making all these jokes and I made them too. Like, oh, everybody starts Dafyomi at the very beginning of Dafyomi when it's, you know, everyone's in the first tractate and it's pretty light reading. You're not yet into like deep agricultural stuff or like uh, all the mathematics of how to construct a set of strings around the city, right? And everyone made those jokes about how, oh, like it's so easy now. And one of the things that you found is that you've been able to keep up with it, even through some of the most difficult tractates in the Talmud. So a year and a half in now, how would you make the case to someone who's never studied Dafyomi before about why they should do something like this? Well, what worked for me is studying in Chavruta. I don't think I would still be right, doing with a study it, partner. having a study partner. And I remember one of the first things we learned at the beginning, you're in Tractate Brachot, and you learn that when you study alone, then the divine presence is with you. But when you study together with another person, then your words are written down in the book of remembrance. And that has proved to be absolutely true. You feel like when you read it yourself, okay, yeah, I got it. I'm with it. The next day you go back to remember what it is that you were reading. And it just is such a flow of, of new information and new concepts that it's hard to recall. So I'm studying together with another economist once a week. Not the colleague I mentioned at the beginning. So there's more than just uh, there's more than just a few of us. Discovering Dafyomi Econ Twitter has blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> because some of the things that we find the most interesting, other people, you know, that's the part they find more exactly. boring. So it's nice, it's nice to have all perspectives included. But we've been studying together once a week. And I think it's what economists call a commitment device. Um, and, you know, that concept isn't so hard, for, I think, for non-economists to latch onto as well. Just knowing that I have an appointment coming 
with someone is what's keeping me honest to continue doing it. So I wouldn't presume to tell anyone you should do it or you shouldn't do it. But if you want to do it, I think setting up the systems at the beginning to make sure that it's going to happen, um, having a study partner. The Twitter account was kind of a commitment device for myself as well. I need to have one thing to share with the world each week. And so that keeps me going back to it. I have to admit, though, that I started Dafyomi on a complete lark. I opened up the newspaper on, I believe it was January 1st. It may have been December 31st. And I saw the image of everyone gathering for the big Siyum for the ending of Reading the Shas for the last cycle. And they were gathering in a, in a big football stadium. And it was just awe-inspiring to see so many people together who've all been studying on this journey. And I said, that's where I want to be in seven and a half years. I did not know what Dafyomi was before I opened up the (laughs) on that day. Well, that explains it. (laughs) It was kind of a lark. And then I reached out on Twitter to say, hey, does anybody want to do this with me? And that's where I found my study partner. And we've just been going from there. Leah's Leah's just a real one, man. Uh, I don't know what else to say. And speaking of real ones, the next episode really is like one of the trippiest most fun, most awesome good faith episodes we'll ever do. Uh, and this one's your number nine. Number nine. This one was with Hollis Robbins, one of the foremost scholars of African-American literature and history in the entire country. And in this clip, I actually, I don't even want to give it too much preamble, but basically we were talking about how a community with clear values and history and a sense of history can take an art form that it never really had a relationship with in the past and actually do incredibly creative things with it. And in this case, Hollis was talking about how African-American poets begin writing sonnets, which we normally associate with like old Europeans, right? But either way, this conversation really anticipated a lot of the thinking that I've done lately and hope to speak more about on the pod, and I've spoken about on other podcasts already, about how faith communities should be engaging with pop culture and Hollywood, media and entertainment, like art forms and media that we're not used to thinking of as quote-unquote ours, uh, or, you know, bastions of faith. But anyway, this conversation really just got my thinking going in that respect. And so uh, without further ado, here's number nine. So the sonnet form, which was invented in 12th century Italy, is very much a kind of Neoplatonic form. And it's metaphysical, right? And the idea was you would look up at a castle, a tower, and there'd be a fair maiden. And she would always be fair, right? Right. And you'd say, I love you, but I can't have you. Like, this is a problem. I have a resolution. So the 14 lines of the sonnet, the first eight lines, were setting out the problem about being in love with this fair maiden. And the six are like, but, you know, I got to work. These are the other issues I'm going through. And sonnet partakes of language of bondage like I'm bound to something or I'm a slave to love and I'm fettered in my desire. And the sonnet form, which is 14 lines of iambic pentameter with a carefully set out rhyme scheme, is also an imprisoning form. So sonneteers throughout the ages from Petrarch, Dante, Michelangelo to Shakespeare, Milton, Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats famously um, in the European tradition, bemoaned the bondage of having to write in a sonnet form and the fact that all of the ideas that their poetic ideas had to be imprisoned in this tight structure. Well, as you can imagine, for Black poets, 
this is really interesting. It's like, let me talk to you about bondage and fetters. Let me talk to you about being constrained. And so after emancipation, you know, in the rise of black colleges and universities, Fisk, Howard, Wilberforce, Tougaloo, Hampton, all these great new universities, a whole new generation of African-American poets in the curriculum, especially at Fisk, had, had a great English department that was full of the English poetic tradition. Writers were like, oh, this form is great, but I can do something new with it. And I can actually talk about the physical, not the metaphysical. And so sonnet writers like Paul Dunbar, who didn't go to college, but he was very widely read, Claude McKay, County Cullen, Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, I could go on and on, took the sonnet form and wrote sonnets like Edward Baugh, There's a Brown Girl in the Ring, which is a sonnet to a brown maiden, right? And Gwendolyn Brooks were like, well, you know what? Let me talk about physical love, not metaphysical love. So the sonnet form became very much a black form. So when you see sonnet writers like Natasha Trethewey or Terence Hayes, Rita Dove, who has an incredible sonnet sequence in a book from the 1990s, you see a transformation of this form into something that speaks specifically to the African-American tradition of breaking out of prisons, of saying, you know what, if we're going to talk about being fettered, I'll talk about being fettered. That whole episode was just incredibly fascinating, and I highly encourage you to give it a listen. That was like one of three dozen different off-the-wall but super relevant topics that we covered. Hollis is brilliant, funny, fun, just uh, an incredible scholar. Like me, you'll just learn a ton. So, okay, that brings us to number eight. Number eight. So it's very possible that this is uh, just like (laughs) objectively like the best episode in the entire run of Good Faith Effort. I know a bunch of listeners actually feel that way. It's from April 22nd, 2021, smack in the middle of several weeks when we were focusing on Leviticus. And, you know, if you don't mind like a light dusting of uh, heretical thinking for a moment, I'm enough of a realistic person to know most people aren't expecting excitement from the book of Leviticus, (laughs) to put it mildly. But along comes Xena Hitz teacher of the great books, professor at St. John's College, faithful Catholic, and author of my favorite book of the past year called Lost in Thought. It's just a magnificent book about learning and and a meditation on why to learn and how to learn for the sake of learning. And Zena was just, I know two ways about it, just like absolute fire. Uh, It's actually a hard episode to excerpt, like you really need to listen to the whole thing, and I highly encourage it. But in this clip, we compared the perspective on parenting and the parent-child relationship found in the ancient Greek sources with the perspective found in biblical sources. Really incredible stuff. So anyway, here is number eight. One thing I've always been fascinated about is how, this may be oversimplifying, but so much of the Greek, especially sort of in the epic style, right? The Greek investigation of the family relationship is often of the tragic element, and especially with parents and children, sort of like the Ur myth is parents losing children, children destroying parents, the tragedy of the lost connection between generations. You also have deep and abiding and an extraordinary interest in that parental relationship at, also at the very opening of biblical civilization, right? So the book of Genesis is also obsessed with, with that kind of relationship between parents and children. And yet in the Bible, you sort of have this, 
this sense that the parental relationship is not only salvageable, but that successful relationship, even between parents who are very different from each other, is actually the basis for a healthy civilization and polity. So have you thought about that kind of distinction between the two civilizations? Is it a valid distinction? And if I'm right, and if I'm not, just tell me I'm wrong, right? But <laughs> but if I'm right, why is the Greek tradition so interested in or convinced of the tragic element of the parental relationship and the biblical tradition is very upfront and unflinching about the distance between parents and children, but ultimately very optimistic about that relationship. I want to say that they are very different approaches. And you're right that parents and children are all over the place. It's like the person who ate his child, you know, the <laughs> the guy who kills his mom, you know. Right, it's like the cosmology begins exactly. with like a, Fratric- a fratricide, yeah, right? When the, the castration <laughs> of the father and then the, you know, the Medea murdering her children. I mean, there's tons of stuff like this, right? I think those tragic dimensions point to certain kinds of human possibilities, which even if they don't happen often or if they never happen, tell us something about who we are. I think that was Freud's insight. Not everything in Freud is true. There's a lot of stuff in there that's kind of made up. But he, I think, had the insight that this is something which belongs to a human being in some way. We have this capacity for violence against the people that are closest to us. And there's something about that parent-child relationship that is fearsome and terrifying. And I think it's the mystery of the thing. Part of the story of Oedipus is he doesn't know who his parents are. And this is, of course, a real human possibility, right? You don't have to know who your parents are. And you can find out very late in life that the people you thought were your parents are not your parents. It's being born into darkness and having to take on trust the world as it's given to you. Those are important insights, but that the Hebrew Bible is offering us hope in a way that the tragedies are not really interested in. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of hope <laughs> in the Greek tragedies. Like all the Greek choruses, maybe it's better not to be born. And you get that in Job in the Bible. You know, that's not the message of Genesis at all, I don't think. Right. Like in Jewish tradition, you get it would have been easier not to be born, but it would be better to be born, right? Yeah, true on both counts. But I think right. about, you know, Rebecca and Isaac, who in a way are maybe the parents who spring to mind as flawed in obvious ways. So, you know, they're not talking to each other. They disagree about which child is the best. And, you know, Isaac actually favors maybe the wrong child. So Rebecca does all this subterfuge and, uh, you know, teaches Jacob all of her ways of deception and trickery, which he uses throughout his life. But it's also true that without that partnership, without Rebecca's presence, Rebecca has a real role to play in getting Jacob launched onto the world in the foundation of Israel. And both of the parents in some way are crucial. And that I feel like is true throughout those stories is that both parents or, you know, all three parents in the case of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, they all are part of the mix. What I love about it is that these people are very admirable in certain ways and really frustrating in other ways. It's a different kind of self-knowledge I think that you get from it. So it's more of a recognition of human nature as you really do see it. So we don't normally see people killing their father or marrying their mothers. That's very weird. Or eating your children. This is wild stuff, right? It's just, it's in the realm of dreams and imagined possibilities, but it's not a part of our daily reality. Whereas the rivalry between Rachel and Leah, that feels real. That's something that you might see. 
or Jacob's inability to not favor the one son of the favorite wife over everyone else, which is really, I think, a big mistake. You know, it's really not good parenting. And it's connected to all sorts of discourse and dialogues about infertility and favoring one over another. You're right. It's so real, so complex, so muddy. I very much love the opportunity to think through the stories about the muddiness of one's own life and one's own situations and to understand that God's choice, it's not a choice of the pure and the perfect. It's a choice of a certain kind of muddling over other kinds of muddling. <laughs> and I, anyway, so that, that's, my ta- that's my lukewarm take. <laughs> I, I I love how uh, Zena's lukewarmest take was like still one of the best moments of the year for me. Totally uh, insane. And by the way, the best part of Zena's run this past year has been like MC Hammer, the MC Hammer, can't touch this, getting really into her book and <laughs> going on Clubhouse with her. So Zena is just the coolest. Anyway, that brings us to number seven. Number seven. This was a totally remarkable episode and a real privilege to do. It's one of the most recent ones, actually, from just a few weeks ago, August 24th, and it featured legendary New York Times columnist David Brooks and actually tweeted about this. I I think pound for pound, like you could make the case that David Brooks is the greatest American newspaper columnist of all time, right? Like you'd make the LeBron case. Like he's just been producing at such a high level for so long. Anyway, we were uh, right in the thick of studying the book of Deuteronomy on good faith effort. And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses's funeral oration. It's a summary, as it were, of the Bible up until that point from Exodus on down. And so it seemed a great time to reflect on the nature of biblical storytelling and how that storytelling has influenced and should influence great American storytelling. And uh, from there, it only got better. So here's just a small excerpt of a much larger, fantastic episode. David Brooks was amazing. Roll it. Number seven. Judd Apatow, the director, uh, one of my favorite directors, has this wonderful observation where he talks about the difference between plot and story, where plot is what we think we're getting from, a, let's say, from a movie, and the story is what we actually need from the movie. So I think the example that he used was super bad, which, you know, what we think we're getting is a story about, like, two kind of fairly gross high school boys coming of age and having a good time. That's the plot. The story is about two people who realize that they have an incredibly precious friend and in many ways they're just never going to have something like this again. So that kind of prompted me to think that way about some of our most enduring narratives. You talked earlier about the book of Exodus. I want to prompt you to think about plot versus story and some of the other foundational tales from that tradition. So what about King David, right? The plot of the King David story is you know, about how power consolidates in ancient Israel. That's the plot of the King David narrative. What's the story of King David? Yeah, Ian Foster, the novelist who was, I guess, early 20th century, he said plot is the king died and then the queen died. A story is the king died and then the queen died of grief. And so what's been added there is why and the human emotion. And so for a kid, the story of David is the story of the underdog, right? And so when you're eight and four foot tall, Do you love that story? I think kids love to read about dinosaurs because they dream of being big and powerful. But then the story becomes one of a deeply sinful man doing good things. And so that's the essence of the David story of deeply flawed leaders who are nonetheless good. And that's the mature love that we talked about earlier. And also the story of a man who is both a poet, a musician, and a king. And it is, even despite his obvious flaws, 
it's a story of a really fulsome version of a human life and as someone who can write the Psalms and, and feel the depths of grief that frankly, I never feel in our politicians, you know, and spent a lot of time interviewing politicians and a lot of them live almost entirely public lives and they don't have some of the internal drama that David had within itself. A journalistic colleague of mine said, you know, they can never make the Sopranos our political class because Tony Soprano, he had a lot going on inside. Right. <laughs> and it's not clear that a lot of our leaders have a lot going on inside. But story is what gives meaning. And, it, and it's worth noting, you know, there was a guy, Jerome Bruner, who's a psychologist or something, who said there are two kinds of knowledge, paradigmatic knowledge and narrative knowledge. And paradigm knowledge is this kind of stuff you put in a legal brief. Narrative knowledge is what's in a story. And it's distinguished by two really great traits, how things change across time, and two, how multi-causal events happen. It's hard with our limited frame of logic to really explain multi-causal events, but a complicated story, whether it's a biblical story or the story of David or Brothers Karamazov, you see multiple people with multiple causal things driving them intertwining into one unified series of events. Narrative is just beautifully complicated and beautifully steeped in what we are, which is meaning-making machines. We don't want things to just happen. We make meaning out of random events because we, we just can't live in a world without meaning. David Brooks, just a, a legend, man. That was really uh, incredible to have him on. Uh, so much more good stuff at the episode. We had a lot of hot takes on Bruce Springsteen. It was a great episode. Go give it a listen. Okay, so the last episode before we get right into the top five is another one of those that could easily have just like been number one. In fact, I think the clip we're about to hear is the most emotional moment that I've had on the show. By the end, I was I was like a wreck. I mean, man, it was it was really uh, really something. So uh, here's your top moment number six. Number six. This was the episode from back at the end of February, and it was right when Black History Month coincided with the Jewish holiday of Purim, when the Jewish people commemorate being saved from genocide, chronicled in the biblical book of Esther. So we were basically at a moment on the calendar in, in February 2021 where both the black and Jewish communities were reflecting upon a traumatic past on the one hand, but also had an opportunity to think, and not just apart from each other, but actually together about a bright, virtuous, just hopeful future. And so I brought on my friend, the incredible host of the Higher Learning Podcast on The Ringer, and he hosts with his uh, co-host, Rachel Lindsay, who was The Bachelorette on ABC. You'll see why that's relevant in the clip. He was also a reporter for TMZ. And now, uh, actually, uh, not that long after this episode aired, an Oscar-winning producer. Shout out to my man, Van. This was an episode with the one, the only, Van Lathan. And this clip is a bit longer, but the whole thing was just so wonderful, and Van was just in top form. So without any further delay, here's Van Lathan with your number six. For those of you who don't know, Van Lathan, uh, uh, Van Lathan's co-host, Rachel Lindsay, uh, was the bachelorette. She was the first bachelorette of color, I believe. And she was involved in a situation where uh, she did an interview with Chris Harrison, who's the host of The Bachelor. And, you know, you could kind of look it up online. I don't want to bore people with it, but you could sure. look it up online. Basically, Rachel correctly raised the question of of a contestant who had been to like a sort of like a, like an old South party at an antebellum yeah, yeah, yeah. house. Yeah, like a slave theme type of deal. Right. And, and Chris sort of like put it on Rachel 
Like, right. this is your problem. Like, like, who am I? Who are you? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And now Chris Harrison sort of stepped off the, the bachelor. Fine. Part of what you just described, I loved how you put it. We haven't lost confidence in God. We've lost confidence in ourselves. That, I would argue, kind of begins in the 18th century. Okay. What human, kind of like what Western civilization, quote unquote, did as a response to that was it tried to build societies around institutions that wouldn't need to run on human virtue. So that's what capitalism is. That's what the market is. That's what this just exists for itself. Exactly. And it doesn't require anybody to be virtuous for it to function. The Actually, you have to be in order for it to function. You actually have to be less than virtuous. Right. Exactly. That makes it run. That makes it run. Runs. Yeah. And I would argue and I would argue whoever lives, lives, whoever dies, dies. And I would argue in a weird way. I know we usually set up like the market and the state as opposites, but the state in many ways, the secular state kind of runs the same way, which is it's a way of like competing for power, right? This is how we've set up a way for us to compete for power in a way where, you know, we're not appealing to God as the ultimate arbiter of who gets to run the state, right? There's no divine right of kings. We're each contending with each other in the realm of politics to see who wins and who loses. Sure. And it's not a mistake, therefore, that it's not an accident that much like in the market, the modern state rewards the most ruthless actors. So because we've kind of created all of these systems that are designed to run not on virtue, but on avarice or greed or on these other things, just because we don't trust ourselves enough to have these important things run on virtue. So it's good to have these things that can kind of like function on their own, I suppose, right, without a religious justification. But on the other hand, when you need to call them to account, they don't have any standard that they accept that allows you to call them to account. So I look at like The Bachelor, which you could just say is like a stand in for American pop culture in general. Sure. And at first I was like shocked by this whole it was just such a crazy interview. Right. And as you said in your podcast, forget right and wrong. It was just smart and dumb. Right. It's right. just stupid. Upon reflection, I'm like, why would I expect anything different, right? To the extent that culture, sort of like American popular culture, much like the state, much like the market, doesn't run on any particular principles. It's just about kind of individual influence and power. So there's no way to call it to account. The highest law in American culture, much like in American academia, much like in the market, is don't get sued, right? That's the highest value. It's the first through 10th commandments is thou shalt not be sued. Right. And so no one wants to take a stand on anything. And I, I almost feel like, man, how silly are we? Like, how silly is Van? How silly is Rachel? Right? How silly are all of us for hoping that, like, one of the most popular institutions in American life would actually say, here's what's right. Let's do that. And it's going to be tough. It's going to require sacrifices. But we should do it because that's what virtue demands of us, demand sacrifice. And... Is there any way without being a theocracy, obviously, right? But like, is there any way for us to kind of bring those those higher principles back into our life, bring something into our life that can allow it to whose judgment we can submit our most venerable and important institutions, whether it's the market, the state or the culture? Is there any way for us to create a society that allows those things to be judged? Uh, Yeah, we have to redefine them. It's like right is so subjective right now, man. As far as what Chris was doing as as the bachelor, a lot of people think that he was right. And to be honest with you, it's the thing that I struggle with the most because you and I have a very, a very static sort of a concrete, actually, concrete 
well, what were the tablets made out of? <laughs> Rock, right? Granite. Granite or something like that. So we have a very concrete example of what's right and wrong. And then, you know, I have Jesus. And so then I just have his life, which is really weird because Jesus's life is just full of all of these lessons. And the hokiest thing was, what would Jesus do? But it's the answer to every question. <laughs> it's like stupid. It's like, it's like it became some kind of weird little thing. But the answer is like, I remember I was working at TMZ. Some people from the Westboro Baptist Church were across the street from us. And I rolled down my windows. I was driving by them. And I was like, yo. And I was just, I was having some fun with them because it was very, very funny. It was like three people. So I'm like, yo, do you literally think that Jesus Christ will be right here screaming the F word at the office? You really feel that way? Like you, you seriously feel like I, I, I'm being for real, like not even on a Christian level, just on a, let's say you weren't even a Christian. Right. Let's say you just read the Bible and you took everything in there as actually a manual, right? And you're writing fanfic, right? <laughs> and you're writing fanfic and you really think that if Jesus were here right now, he would be yelling the F word at people walking into the door. Okay. If you think that, just show me one time that he did something like that. Right. And so it's very simple. It's the simplest, hardest thing in the world just to be decent. And it's the greatest gift that you can give to society. The greatest gift that you can give to society isn't philanthropy, right? It isn't political action, right? It's decency. And then the question becomes, what informs your decency? Why are you decent? I'm decent because there's a higher judge. I'm indecent all the time, but the decency that I do feel is because I feel like there's something greater than me that goes, yo, Van, I'm watching you. And more than anything, the brilliance of God is that God just wants the fellowship with you, just wants the connection and the relationship for having created all of this. Just want you to say, hey, man, I appreciate you. Do this, do that. I got you. I'm with you. And when people don't feel that, sometimes I ask, you know, I have one of my brothers is an atheist, and I ask him, why don't you just go around destroying everything and taking advantage of everyone? If you believe that you're here for 70 years and then you waste away into a nothingness forever and there's no judge or no nothing, then why would you do anything right? You know what I mean? Like what, like what, what is the deal, right? And also, if you do believe that, if that is the way that you look at the world, then it would make sense to get as much as you can. It would make sense for you to only think about what it is that you're doing. It would make sense for you to only think about how things affect you and your family. Because none of this really matters, right? It's a cosmic crapshoot. So I think the first thing we do is we define what is right and why we believe what is right. And the difference between how we did it in the beginning and how we're going to do it now is now we've got to do it together. Now it can't be 1% of the people setting the rules. Now we have to look at America. We have to decide what we want. Not just America, the world. Everyone needs our help. Everyone needs our fellowship. Everyone needs our brother and sisterhood. Everyone needs this, right? We have to look at all of these things and figure out what informs us, what makes us feel whole, what brings us peace. Forget about all, bro, you know what this pandemic taught me? Is I don't want anything but peace. That's all I want. The career is great. My fiance is beautiful. I have a beautiful dog. Like all of these things are like her and our bond is obviously something that's spiritual and very deep to me. And I love her and I'm praying to God that I learn how to love her better. But what I want more than anything is peace. And you simply can't have peace without God. And you can't preach peace without God. And you can't go forth in peace without God. Ari, 
I've connected with you because I sense the God in you. I sense the anointing that you have. When I'm speaking to you and when I'm talking to you, you have a peaceful, calming presence. We do not share the same faith, but I know you mean what you say, right? And there's God in there. So unfortunately for you, it's not my job to figure out how to bring that to everybody. It's your job. So good luck with that. <laughs> but what I, so, so, but like what I can tell you is that I'm right here to help you. Amen. Whoo. Ah, man. As I said, that moment at the end, that uh, really got to me. Uh, Van's incredible. And uh, shout out again on the Oscar. Van, you're amazing. I love you. Uh, so, okay, we're in the top five now. This is the absolute best of the year right here. So let's go top five. Let's get started with your number five. Number five. This episode was just a tremendous amount of fun to do. A little backstory. So uh, this episode was with Tommy Collison. And Tommy's the head of business development and comms at Lambda School, which is this incredible, well, basically a tech education startup. They're teaching students how to code and doing it through income share agreements. It's pretty amazing. So because of that, Lambda's incentivized to heavily invest in their student success. It's really incredible. They're doing amazing things. And so on the one hand, you know, you describe Tommy as like a tech executive. But at the same time, he's also very publicly taken on the project of reading through the great books curriculum, the classics of Western civilization and so forth, and sharing the journey with others through Twitter, through online discussion groups like Interintellect and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So he's also a big face of the humanities online. And I found all this totally fascinating. First of all, because as you remember from the Trey Stevens episode, and as we'll talk uh, a bit more about later, spoiler alert. I'm uh, really interested in the intersection of tech and tradition and values. But the episode ended up becoming doubly interesting because of something I uh, <laughs> I had no idea about at the time that we booked the episode, which is that Tommy was, at the time, in the process of converting to Judaism. And since then, he's actually completed his conversion. Tablet Magazine actually wrote about it. It was pretty cool. Mouse love to Tommy. And I kid you not, I had no idea about any of this uh, until... Uh, right before we started recording, the episode was for Parshas Vayigash on the Hebrew calendars. And for those uh, not familiar or following along at home, that's the culmination of the Joseph story in the book of Genesis. And so there we are getting ready to record and the sound checks taking a bit of time. And so Tommy's like, oh, no problem. I'm actually just on Chabad.org anyway, reading up on Parshas Vayigash. And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> so anyway, bottom line is that uh, Tommy's one of the most incredible people I've ever met, a learner, a doer, a seeker, and the following clip about how tradition can inspire intellectual life and aid in exploring questions about societal value is just fantastic. And so without further ado, here's number five. In talking about your great books project, so you've publicly mentioned two influences, and I just thought this was so fascinating. The first is the idea of applied history, which, you know, even if people aren't familiar with the term, it's something I think most people intuitively grasp when they think about history, which is that when you study history, the goal should be to draw lessons from the past and apply them to real world problems. But the other influence you mention is something called Dafyomi, which I don't think is a household name to most Americans. <laughs> um, <laughs> suffice it to say. So for those who don't know, Dafyomi, which literally means the daily page, 
is the educational program, which is now quite popular among Jews throughout the world and getting more popular every kind of several years or so, to study one page of the Talmud, which is one of Judaism's central texts, every single day, so that over the course of about like seven and a half years, you can finish the entire Talmud. So can you talk a little bit about how the Dafyomi influenced you in thinking about the structure of this, this project? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I've always admired the sort of pragmatism of, of folks who do Dafyomi, and I've known people who, who are doing it. Um, I don't know if I've known anyone who finished it, which might be telling. <laughs> but um, in, in terms of actually doing it, I mean, it's, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You just like a little bit at a time. And so rather than either waiting until I have more time or I'm retired, you know, something like that, it's just like, okay, what is the smallest amount that I can break this down to? And I believe with Dafyomi, it's kind of literally a page. And, you know, so I said, okay, well, you know, roughly 150 books over five years, you know, whatever way I kind of did the math at the beginning, it worked out to be roughly a classic book every two weeks. And that's like a fairly big investment of time in the sense of kind of, you know, you're not going to be doing a whole lot else if you're doing that. But as I kind of th- I think I said in my original announcement, I mean, it's the winter of a global pandemic. And so uh, there's not a lot of stuff kind of really competing for my time these days. So just doing kind of a little bit every day, I guess, I guess it's not kind of anything gets done, right? Um, and so that was just kind of what I wanted to copy. Like normally I'd go like watch a Knicks game, but instead, like I'll just read the Iliad. Like that feels like a good trade-off during the pandemic. <laughs> I, I mean, you say that, but but with each of the things, and I've I've read, I think, four or five books at this stage and started two or three more, with almost no exception. I mean, some parts of it are obviously super dense. Like, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey are very human texts, and they're definitely a lot of work. You read it much slower than you would read kind of any other book or a business book or anything kind of nonfiction these days. But the Odyssey is fundamentally about a guy who really loves home and has like fame and glory and really kind of could do anything with his life. And he literally just wants his home and his dog and his wife and his bed in roughly that order. And so there's something kind of charmingly human about all of that. I never thought about it this way. It's literally the plot of John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it, but, but I'm sure it is. And that's actually super interesting as well about the Great Books Project. In the same way that the Talmud and kind of Jewish tradition is just people commenting on commenting on commenting on commenting, so much of that, you know, The Lion King is just Hamlet, but set in Africa. You know, John Wick ostensibly is the Odyssey, but um, I guess modern day or in a movie form. like With lots of guns. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I really wish I had seen this before, before the interview, but... Um, <laughs> but there really is an idea that the kind of the books on this list and the books that St. John's have, have put together, they're the intellectual ancestors of so many of our discussions today. And especially kind of, I think it's easy to, to talk about things today being unprecedented. And they talk about a lot in terms of politics. Politics today is, is so nasty and mean and polarizing. And, you know, you look at, say, the founding of America, where the newspapers were super partisan and really kind of smacked each other around. And one of my favorite kind of stories is that Thomas Jefferson printed something that basically kind of called out the hermaphroditical character John Adams. of John Adams, you know, basically saying that he's like one person in one scenario and a totally different person in another. These people weren't particularly polite back then. And the Great Books Project is kind of a really interesting way of saying there's not a lot new these days. You know, the questions that, you know, the founding fathers were talking about in terms of, you know, what should the relationship between the federal and the state government be? What should our foreign policy be? What should our policy towards immigration be? All of these are are conversations that we're still having today. And so both kind of in America itself, but I think also with these great books, a lot of which come from from Europe and and, uh, East Asia, you know, a lot of them really are at kind of almost the first time that these questions are being asked that we are kind of still trying to answer today. 
just brilliant. Seriously, Tommy Collison, ladies and gentlemen, wow. And man, I forgot what an awful cold I had during during that episode. Yikes. Okay, anyway, so that brings us right into the final four. Number four. This is huge, folks, and sitting pretty at number four is actually one of the most recent episodes from August 10th when we were talking all about the book of Deuteronomy. This was Parsha Shoftim for all my Jewish nerds out there, and the episode was called A Tale of Two Jew Boys, and uh, and it was probably the episode of Good Faith Effort that I laughed the hardest at, and honestly, I really think the guests and I could have gone on for hours. It featured actor, writer, comedian, Elon Gold, uh, who, by the way, you can catch in his uh, recurring role on the upcoming season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And Elon's someone I'd wanted to have on for a while because he's been absolutely fearless when it comes to fighting anti-Semitism, especially in the world of, of media and pop culture. And I, I just wanted to talk to him about his perspective and maybe even more importantly, figure out how we turn all of these challenges into opportunities for bringing our values and our ideas and biblical values and ideas out into the societal discourse. And uh, man, (laughs) Elon uh, did not disappoint. This was one of the most popular episodes of Good Faith Effort ever. And I genuinely wish I could just play the entire thing right here, right now. But a small excerpt we'll have to do in the meantime until you listen to the whole thing on your own, of course. So here's your number four. So there's this thing that we all encounter where you'll get some Jewish person like in the pop culture and politics or the media or whatever who will be like, well, as a Jew, I think anti-Semitism is being weaponized to shut down debate, blah, blah, blah. Or like, you know, well, as a Jew, I can tell you I was brainwashed in summer camp into believing Israel was more perfect than God. And like, aside thank from you, the Seth fact- Rogen. Exactly. And like, aside from the fact that this is like the dorkiest, most pathetic form of pandering and groveling that you could possibly imagine, it also exposes, I think, kind of like a conceptual weakness that American or maybe like Western society more generally introduces into the conversation around anti-Semitism. And that is for the vast, vast majority of Jewish history, like until three seconds ago, relatively speaking, Jewishness was something that you did. It was something that you embodied, right? So you lived as a Jew and that didn't mean you were perfect or you kept all the practices or believed this or that, or, or even knew anything about Jewish literature or wisdom at all. But it was kind of understood that you had some sort of experiential bar to clear before you could speak prescriptively about how Jewish life should go. But in America today, there's like nothing more important in the world than identity, how you identify, what your racial or ethnic identity is or what have you. And that ends up getting transposed onto Jewishness. So like Judaism isn't something you do or a way you live. It's something you are. So like merely breathing and having a Jewish parent means you're just as entitled to speak, quote unquote, as a Jew as anyone else. And like, yes, Judaism does believe that you are a Jew no matter what. But isn't there something off? Like, isn't there a problem when literally anyone with a circumcision or like not even like these days can just presume to speak authoritatively about anti-Semitism, even if they invest like next to nothing in their Jewish identity in any other circumstance? Like, how do we fix that? Yeah, you're exactly on point. And the truth is, like I said, up until I was 30, I didn't know anything about Israel and, you know, whatever they taught you at camp this is just feeds right into these they've got these secret meetings and these agendas it's like you know what i'll admit something we do have secret meetings and agendas they're called fundraisers and at these fundraisers we have a few agendas number one how do we get these idiots to stop thinking we have an agenda number two (laughs) 
<laughs> how do we raise more money so that we can continue to have these meetings to discuss how to stop right. people? To, uh, anyway, the point is, it's it's ridiculous how people speak with authority. You've got to live a really Jewish life. Now, I, I'm not preaching religion here. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be like any particular form no. of denominationalism or whatever. But like, right? But the but way you I have the to way- know your stuff. You know, if you never heard of Tisha B'av, then don't talk about Judaism, right? Because Tisha B'av is at the center of it all. Like it's like Israel. It's you know, you know. For me, again, back to the the false narrative. When someone like Abbas, the the leader of the PA, says there were no temples here, it's like flies in the face of history, archaeology, theology, reality. And he says the Jews have no connection to Jerusalem. It's like no, 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 no. We actually made the connection. Right. It's it, it was it was us who said eh, this is uh, this is our holy place. It's like I have a joke that we don't have time for jokes, but the, but it's like imagine if you know Walt Disney who just literally went to Orlando, this landlocked garbage town, and said <laughs> this is going to be our happy place. This is going to be the happiest place on earth. And everyone was like, Walt. Upon this rock, I shall build my church, you know. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, Walt, this is Orlando. Let's, you know, we're landlocked here. There's nothing here. No, 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 this will be our, now imagine Universal comes along and they go, we're going to build our theme park uh, across the street and it's going to be our happy place too. And the Disney folks are like, yeah, gig is it tight. The more the merrier, sure. But now imagine Universal that comes along after Disney goes, you know, these Disney folks, they got no business being here. This is not their happy place. It's our happy place. They got nothing to do with happy and Orlando. It's like, what? We invented Orlando right. as the happy place. So the Hebrew Bible deemed Israel as the holy land. It was called the promised land because it was promised to the Jewish people. But here's the truth. We want to share it, and we're happy to share it with our Christian and Muslim brothers and sisters. But not only do they not want to share it, and I'm talking about leadership, not everybody, but they literally want it to be Judenrein. They want it to be, you know, they're just for them and no one else, like they ethnically cleanse us out of every Middle Eastern country. So it's like, how do you look at both of those sides and do that? But back to your point. So unless you know all these things and you're really well-versed and you're studied on Jewish history, again, not just Israel's history, but Jewish history, if you've learned the Talmud, if you've done our rituals and customs, you know, celebrate our holidays, then you could speak with some authority. But when you have a guy like Seth Rogen, who I got into a Twitter war with, who literally has no connection to Judaism other than culturally, like he is very culturally, and by the way, a proud Jew, very proud to be Jewish. I mean, he wore it on his sweater for an entire movie, a, a mug right. and David. Right. So he gets very upset, as he did with me, with Jews like you think that I, I mean, I am like the most proud Jew ever. I wore it on my freaking sweater for an entire movie. <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> that was another Donald Trump impression. That You know, you know, a lot of guys, they do these impressions and nobody knows. Nobody knows who they're doing. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I can't stand Donald Trump. Um. Seth Rogen also has that nasal thing. He's, I'm very nasal. I can't say my ends. I, I say nasal with a D. Um, <laughs> the point is, Seth Rogen tweets out, uh, I didn't know there were people there before, meaning before 1948. And I just couldn't let that 
tweet go by without saying something? And I replied, yeah, Seth, there were people there before 48. People like my mother, who was born in 1936. I was going to say, I'm named after someone who was literally born in Jerusalem. My great-grandfather. <laughs> and you didn't know? And now that plays into the, the false narratives. And that plays into, they did come in and just steal the land. Oh, they're not indigenous. It's like, no, no, no. We go back thousands of years. Yeah, there were people there before. <laughs> Man, <laughs> like I said, uh, go listen to the whole thing. Elon and I talked a lot more about movies, TV, faith, and the Bible. Man, it was just rad. So yeah, that'll bring us uh, right into the top three. Number three. This next episode is from all the way back in February, and it featured one of the most thoughtful and incredible people I've ever had on the pod, former tech journalist who's now a partner at the legendary VC firm General Catalyst, Catherine Boyle, who's not only done some of the most excellent public writing on the positive intersection of tech and religion, but, you know, has actually put her thinking into action in the startup world and in the world of venture capital. So to the extent that one of the signature issues we've dealt with on Good Faith Effort has been why tech and traditional religion are actually natural allies in the task of creating a future uh, of human flourishing. So I'd say this episode is actually really where that focus on the podcast has really all begun. This was the episode that really began that journey that we've been on. And, and the episode covered everything from the moral revolution initiated by the book of Exodus, how major tech companies like Facebook and Google uh, are best understood through the lens of the first two chapters of Genesis, uh, what Silicon Valley can perhaps uniquely do to strengthen traditional faith. I mean, honestly, clocking in at just like a half hour, we're talking one of the richest episodes in the history of this podcast, Pound for Pound. And the excerpt we're about to listen to is just like a short snippet of a totally amazing, mind-blowing conversation. And I beg you to just go and listen to the whole thing. This is just a tease. It was amazing. But in the meantime, uh, this will have to suffice for you. So here's number three. I know thinking about the U.S. in terms of like East Coast versus West Coast is a tale as old as time. Or, you know, like a tale as old as Tupac and Biggie. But I think it really does help to think of the U.S. right now as having two capitals. There's an East Coast capital in D.C. and a West Coast capital in Silicon Valley or in the Bay Area. And I know that's simplifying, but bear with me. So the East Coast capital is run by folks who are much older. The average age in the House and the Senate is like late 50s, early 60s. It's much more risque averse and religious symbolism is much more overt in its public imagery. And the West Coast capital is run by folks who are much younger, late 30s, early 40s, but also some notable success stories younger than that, much more likely to take risks, and where, at least in the public mind, much more likely to be hospitable to people who think religion is silly or even bad. So if traditional communities or traditional religious communities, which is a very substantial portion of America and certainly the majority and given demographic trends likely to be that way for some time. So if traditional communities or traditional religious communities had to go long on the East Coast or the West Coast, D.C. or the Bay Area, I think most people just assume as a matter of course that the answer is go long on the East Coast Power Center. But I actually suspect that a good counterintuitive case could and should be made for going long on the West Coast Power Center. So could you make that case? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I love the the framing you have of wizards and prophets. And at some point, we'll, we'll come back to that because I do think the the wizards, even though they're they're framed as not being open to religion on the West Coast, I think what people miss is that there's so much spirituality and kind of religion in Silicon Valley, even in the language that we use. That it, that it's important to understand. I think the the parallels between religion and sort of building a company. So one of the things before I moved to Silicon Valley, I was so struck by this. I was an outsider, I was a journalist, and I was looking in on what does Silicon Valley actually mean and and what are the parallels between religion? And the first thing that was really notable to me was that the thing that the media in particular was so upset about happening in Silicon Valley was Facebook and Google were seen as sort of these behemoths, these sort of, you know, uh, if you're going to use the David and Goliath, you know, parable, like they were the Goliaths in the room. And their original sin was actually the original sin of man, which is wanting to have all knowledge at our fingertips which I thought was always really amazing. Like maybe there's something primal about why people are so upset about these, these big companies because maybe what we're trying to do is sort of have a, have a fight with God in many ways. That was sort of my coming in as an outsider. I was like, maybe this is the problem with Silicon Valley. But then I met so many early stage founders uh, who really think of themselves as starting on their own creation journey. You know, they're building something from scratch. They're having to kind of create a tribe or a posse of people who will believe in something that's considered to be, in many cases, kind of unorthodox or crazy, or people look at them almost as these people who aren't following the traditional path. And so to go back to your sort of fixed mindset or part of the prophet versus the wizard, it's really hard to be a wizard in today's society. And I think that most of our prophets are actually in sort of these old power centers where they want things to stay the way they are. They don't necessarily you know, want to see this sort of vibrancy or, or kind of new innovation or kind of new creation. And so I do think there's a lot of parallels between the wizards in Silicon Valley who are sort of starting off on this creation story. They're the, you know, the first and second books of the Bible. They're the, you know, starting with Genesis and then going into Exodus. You know, they really are starting this journey from scratch. And that sort of necessitates that they'll find their own tribe and that they'll have their own sort of ethos that I think is important to building something new. And let me tell you, the episode only got wilder from there. Catherine Boyle, just an absolute legend. And speaking of legends, let's get to number two, the second absolute best moment of good faith effort this year. Number two. This actually might be the episode that I get the most comments about. And it may actually be my listeners' favorite episode of Good Faith Effort, like, ever. This could so easily have been number one. It's crazy. This one was from back in July, and it featured Dr. Anika Prather, who's a lecturer at Howard University, one of the top schools in the country, and the number one ranked among the nation's historically black colleges and universities. Anika's an expert on ancient Greece and Rome, and is one of the best and best-known public thinkers and writers in America on the Black community's engagement with the classical tradition. Now, we actually released this episode just around the time on the Jewish calendar when we observed the biblical fast of the fifth month, which Jews know colloquially as Tisha B'Av. And Tisha B'Av is the day when we mourn the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And given that the temple was destroyed by the Romans, and actually about 200 years before that was sacked by the Greeks— So this fast day actually represents a climax in some senses of the political and philosophical clash between the two greatest civilizations of antiquity, classical civilization and biblical civilization, Athens and Jerusalem. And so it occurred to me that both the Jewish and black communities actually share this complicated relationship with the classical tradition. So I invited Anika on to help us think it through. And she was just 
magnificent, incisive, inspiring. And this is just one tiny snippet of a conversation. You need to listen to the whole thing in full. But without further ado, here's your number two. You've had the experience of seeing classical education transform your students. So can you can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like? Oh, it was incredible. I came to understand its relevance before I came to understand its relevance. <laughs> what I mean by that is... <laughs> that basically me, describes everything I learned. <laughs> it was more so an emotional thing first. I didn't understand its history. I didn't even understand the history of classics at Howard at that time. As soon as I started reading it, my parents were really into classical education for Black people, and I thought they were crazy. And then I somehow stumbled into teaching great books at their school. And as soon as I began to read them to prepare my lessons, I began to say, wow, I've been so wrong about these texts. And they began to transform me. They began to heal my heart of bitterness because I had endured a lot of racism. And I began to see this human story unfold that connects us all. And then it really became solidified when my experience, I began to see in my students as they read them. This emotional, mental, soul change happened in students. As one student said in my dissertation, these books tell all of our stories. I feel like they are identifying with whatever I'm going through. And when we say classical education, I also want to clarify, K-12 classical education includes reading classics as well as all the works of the Western canon, not just ancient Greece and Rome. Sure. In universities or academia, when we say classics, we mean mainly the study of ancient Greece and Rome and everything that intersects there. So as my students began to read these texts, you began to see them go through the process of thinking more about their worldview. They became more willing to listen to people who think differently than they do, as opposed to getting angry or wanting to fight and argue about it. And Susan Weisbauer, who wrote The Well-Trained Mind, which I really believe any educator, who, especially those in classical, needs to read it, she calls the canon rhetoric and action. And that's such a powerful statement to me. It's one of my most favorite ones because when students read it, they go through what Frederick Douglass went through, reading it and seeing the reason and the logic interchanging and doing this kind of song and dance together. And then it begins to come into your spirit and you begin to think like that. So I began to see my students go through that process. The transformation was really incredible. And so I saw that first before I knew about its history in the Black community. And so what really, really grabbed my heart is when I'm analyzing what's going on with my students and then say, I read the story of Frederick Douglass. I'm saying here he is an enslaved boy with no hope, 12, 13 years old, being introduced to Cicero and literally going through the same thing and verbalizes what my students said they're going through in the early 2000s. Wow. And that's when I became really conscious of the power and the importance of reading the text. So it's interesting because when I think of the role that classical education plays, you know, when it first becomes popular, just as universities are becoming a thing in the early modern era, you know, it's really like a ticket to the upper class in a sense, right? So like the merchants in Genoa are reading Cicero and writing to their, yes. you know, contacts in Provence yes. in classical Greek and Latin because it's a way to kind of show that they're trustworthy, they speak the yes. same language. So it's kind of a ticket, you know, out of the masses or out of humanity or above humanity. Whereas in the life of Frederick Douglass, for yes. example, it's the opposite. It's a way to bring you back to humanity, to, yes. to bring you into humanity. It's a way to say, listen, you know, this life I've been leading where everybody around me is telling me I'm not worth anything. I'm worth less. I'm yes. This is a way to bring you back. So it actually plays the opposite role in this tradition than it does, yeah. than it does elsewhere, right? That's such an important point you're making. And I think that first point you made is what has made people resist it. 
There are two things that have happened historically. Right. That was where I wanted to go. Yeah. In the Black community. Let's talk about the Black community with that. So you have like Du Bois, of course, people have accused him of being elitist. And Alan Locke, people have accused him of looking down at people who maybe did not have that classical training. And even my own family, you see it, Black people, you know, we tend to get really proud of the fact that we are reading some work of the canon and can understand it and, you know, kind of set ourselves apart from others. My favorite educator, Anna Julia Cooper, she awakened me to what you're saying, that are these texts supposed to set us apart as somehow higher or better than someone else? And so Black people get upset because that division of I'm smart, you're not, you know, I'm of this class because I've read these texts and can speak this Latin. And then white people have used it to say, this is for us. This is our heritage. This is not your, you're not smart enough to understand these texts. So the texts themselves have been used as some sort of a, a weapon against class, against skin color. And so that has also contributed to where we are today. But in us paying so much attention to those who've misused the texts, we have failed to look at those who have used them properly, which is, as you said, such as Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King or Anna Julia Cooper or all the great liberators in our history. And I know I feel like I say that a lot. I keep repeating it on Twitter and on podcasts because I'm trying to call to remembrance to everyone who will hear me, get your minds off of those who misuse the text, whether they were racist or whether they were a black elitist. That is not where our attention should be, because if we only focus on this, we miss the whole story. And the story is how those texts call to our remembrance that we are human, not because we can read a classic text, but because we can read those texts and see stories that we can identify with. Guys, Anika is just so full of insight. I could have learned from her for days. I truly did not want that podcast to end. Anyway, definitely give her a follow on Twitter at Anika Free Indeed. She's just a fantastic presence there as well. And uh, she's a regular part of my uh, social media diet. So that really brings us uh, right to the end, because at this point, uh, well, we just got one thing left to do, and that is your number one episode of the entire year. Here we go. Number one. The top moment. Number one. Numero uno. The best of the best on this year of good faith effort is, drumroll, an episode from the very beginning of February with reporter for the New York Times, loud and proud recent convert to Judaism, the incredible, the amazing Nellie Bowles. So for those of you who are longtime listeners to Good Faith Effort, you'll know that we record this podcast out of the most soundproof room in the house, which is my wife Shlomit's shoe closet. So I'm just surrounded by shoes and clothes and whatnot during every recording. And, and this episode just got off to a really auspicious start because usually I have to explain the weird setting to guests because like they're looking around the closet. But Nellie, <laughs> Nellie signed on to Zoom to do the recording and like, bam, there she was in the shoe closet in her house as well. So we totally bonded over that. It was a great start. And from there, we went on to record the most popular episode in the history of Good Faith Effort. It's the one people really, I think, do love the most. Uh, so much so, in fact, that my dear friend, thought partner, Liel Leibovitz, best, best friend of the pod, actually specifically mentioned how awesome this episode was in an article for Tablet Magazine, which was super sweet of him and totally due to how awesome Nelly was on the episode. But yeah, this episode for me, it really gave me a sense of how 
lucky I was to be able to sit in Shlomit's closet every single week and just learn from some of the most like remarkable people in the world about how the ideas and values of the Bible really do inform and influence the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture, from psychology to literature, from the synagogue and church to Silicon Valley and beyond, as I say at the beginning of every episode. So anyway, on this one, which we recorded while Nelly was busy converting to Judaism and being fully engaged to the equally awesome Barry Weiss, also friend of the pod, we talked about the core idea behind Good Faith Effort, behind this podcast, namely how traditional religion is an essential good for those seeking meaning, purpose, and community. And uh, specifically, we spoke about why a person would choose traditional religion in this day and age, as Nelly has done. And it was just a really moving conversation. No thanks to me and all thanks to Nelly, as you'll be able to hear in this short clip. And here, I think more than in any other case, I really implore you just to go and listen to the whole episode. It's just truly wonderful. And so uh, without any further ado, here is your number one episode of the entire year. I had this experience earlier in the year. Unfortunately, I lost both of my grandparents, my grandfather, and my grandmother. I'm so sorry. My grandfather was like this incredible, very well-known American Jewish theologian who's mm. president of Yeshiva University, intellectual giant. Everything I know could fit in his pinky toe. And we lost him and my grandmother during COVID in very tragic ways, in ways that we couldn't, mm. where we couldn't feel like we could mourn them properly. And I remember feeling, I actually wrote something about this for Tablet, like my body like shut down when my grandfather passed away. And I remember feeling this sense of, Without tradition, without my tradition, without Jewish tradition, how could I possibly come up with anything freestyled off the top of my head that would be sufficient to yeah. mark his passing? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, they're traditions because they've been crafted over thousands of years and sort of hammered at by many hands and and a little bit bucking traditions or pretending like we don't need any of the wisdom of them. Yeah, it's presumptuous. It's saying that, like, I'm more brilliant and more different than all these humans. But, like, no, I'm just like an elevated monkey. Like, I, <laughs> I, I need help. I need structure. I need guidance on how to live a good life. And I don't want to spend all my time trying to piece together what that means when I think there's a pretty good system in Judaism. And, and honestly, it started with me with Shabbat. Yeah. So tell me about that. What What is Shabbat like? That's the thing where I feel like I literally do not understand how anyone lives without Shabbat. And so you're experiencing I don't it for the now. first time. Like that was, tell, tell me about it. That was the ritual that really got me at the start. And that made me realize that like giving up some of my feelings of like choice and total freedom could actually bring me pleasure and happiness and some sort of wisdom that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Shabbat for me, I mean, at first, the pleasure is just in shutting everything off and just not using your electronics and, and just like the sort of like self-help mode of digital detox, right? Like that's very good. It's really helpful for me, like an overworked 32-year-old <laughs> woman in LA now. But on a deeper level, it's sort of like, I mean, it's a metaphor for the whole thing, right? You're working on building beauty in time rather than beauty in space. So you're, the Heschel idea of the cathedral in time which is such a Jewish idea and kind of introduced me to a Jewish way of thinking about holiness and sacredness. And then also the submission to it, that it's not broken up into six-hour chunks throughout the week, and that's how you do Shabbat. It's 25 hours starting Friday night, going until Saturday night. 
And it's that way because it's that way. And that was really compelling for me once it started. Like once I gave up fighting the timing issue and once I was like, okay, it is what it is. It's that way because it's that way. And then that kind of was the key for a lot of other Jewish rituals and a lot of other like, a lot of others finding freedom and giving up freedom. So that's it, guys. We did it. We got through it. Top 15 episodes of the year. I hope you enjoyed this journey as much as I did. Now that we've come to uh, the end of a full year of good faith effort, I want to thank, in no particular order, Engineer Paul, the indefatigable, incomparable, unbelievable producer who's with us on the dials every single episode and who makes it sound as incredible as it does. Paul, you are amazing. Engineer Josh, uh, for executive producing the whole thing. This uh, evil genius is responsible for the theme music, which I just love, and Josh is amazing. Uh, Rabbi Gabby Weinberg, my partner in crime, who oversees this whole thing and all of Soul Shop, just incredible. Stephanie, for uh, booking all of our guests. You are amazing. Thank you to every single one of the guests who came on this year. I cannot tell you how much I learned from each and every one of you. Even choosing top 15 moments of the year was next to impossible. And most importantly, I want to express just intense, extraordinary gratitude to every single one of you who listens to this podcast, whether it's once or once a month or on a weekly basis. Every single one of you is very special to me, is an essential part of what we do. I love hearing from you, and I can't wait to share more incredible conversations with you in the coming season and year of uh, Good Faith Effort. Please subscribe, spread the word. Throw us a five-star rating on iTunes, on Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. Leave a review and uh, hit me up on Twitter, on Instagram, anywhere you want to. Because, as I said, I, I love nothing more than engaging with you, than hearing from you. And uh, I can't wait for more. It's been an amazing year. Love you all. This has been Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. Network.com.